Thank you for joining us for today's show. You can follow us on Facebook or visit our website at BeatitudesChurch.org. Beatitudes Radio, empowering people to enrich society. The first scripture today comes to us from Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 through 4. Jacob lived in the land of Canaan. It's the land where his father had stayed. Here is the story of the family line of Jacob. Joseph was a young man. He was 17 years old. He was taking care of the flocks with some of his brothers. They were the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, the wives of his father Jacob. Joseph brought their father a bad report about his brothers. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. That's because Joseph had been born to him when he was old. Israel made him a beautiful robe. Joseph's brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, so they hated Joseph. They couldn't even speak one kind word to him. Today's second verse comes to us from Genesis 50, verses 15 through 21. Now that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers were worried. They said, remember all the bad things that we did to Joseph? What if he decides to hold those against us? What if he pays us back for them? So they sent a message to Joseph. They said, your father gave us directions before he died. He said, here's what you must say to Joseph. Tell him, I'm asking you to forgive your brothers. Forgive the terrible things they did to you. Forgive them for treating you so badly. Now then, please forgive our sins. We serve the God of your father. When their message came to Joseph, he wept. Then his brothers came and threw themselves down in front of him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Do you think I'm God? You planned to harm me, but God planned it for good. He planned to do what is now being done. He wanted to save many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your children. He calmed their fears, and he spoke in a kind way to them. Today is November 6th, but the video doesn't come out until Sunday, November 8th. We record on Friday, which gives us time to edit everything and have it ready to go on Sunday morning. So today at 1030 on a Friday, we still don't know who the next president of the United States will be. We are a country. When you look at the polls, and not only that, but the voting results, we are a country that is divided. When you look at the popular vote, they are so close to each other when it comes to percentages. 
Right now, we have four or five swing states that literally are only separated by a few thousand votes. This has led many individuals to surmise that we are a country that is not only divided, but we're actually becoming two countries, sharing the same soil, sharing the same water, but yet having different ideas, different values, and different priorities. George Packer says, we are two countries, and neither of them is going to be conquered or disappear anytime soon. Now, you may think that he is going to an extreme, but it is something that at least we should pause and reflect upon. This red and blue that we find in our country. Look at the electoral map. You'll see in the middle, the majority of it is red, and then on the sides, blue and blue. You go back a few decades, and yes, it happened where 90% of the votes were either red or blue. It just happened. But today, and if you look back at the last four or five elections, we are becoming more and more polarized. Perhaps you've heard a friend say to you, I, I don't understand why they would vote for so-and-so. And that's the reality. We do not understand people who vote differently than us. We don't think like them. We don't understand them. We don't trust them. So in turn, that leads us to a position where we see the way that we think, the way that we vote, as being the American ideal. And the other side, the other party, the other color, they're the ones that are misleading us. They're the ones that are either stopping us or going so far ahead that they're losing what our country truly is. We are a country in need of reconciliation. Is it possible? Reconciliation is not easy. It's work. And to reconcile, you need two individuals who are willing to do that hard work. But before those two individuals can do that work, they need to do some internal work. And we learn this from a story that we find in the Old Testament. It's the story of Joseph and his brothers. When you read the story that begins in Genesis chapter 37 and it goes all the way into chapter 50, we realize that these individuals don't like each other. They're worse than the reds and the blues. Joseph, if we're to understand this dissension between him and his brothers, we need to understand the situation that he grew up in. Joseph comes from a very complex family system. His dad, he's got one dad. But his dad has four wives, and each of them have children. But the text in particular wants us to focus on the sons, and there are 12 sons. Well, that alone is going to create some unique dynamics within that family system. But then there's Joseph. And for some reason, Joseph gets his dad's attention. Now, the text tells us that 
the reason Jacob liked Joseph more than his other sons was because it was the first son of his true love and of those four wives, Rachel. And then he begins to show favoritism toward Joseph. The story is told that Joseph is given a special robe, a piece of outer clothing. Some translate that as a coat, a coat of many colors. But now not only does he show favoritism in his words and his actions, now he's showing favoritism by what he does as far as giving him something that he will wear that will continually be in the face of his brothers. Hey, look what dad gave me, huh? Did you get one? No. See? It's all about me. And if you look at the story, especially those first five verses of Genesis chapter 37, Joseph is, he's not perfect. I mean, he's a tattletale. When he sees his brothers acting in ways that he deems inappropriate, he runs and he tells his dad. Well, in family systems, between siblings, that gets old real quick. And not only that, but when you read the story, you begin to wonder, is Joseph either a narcissist or is Joseph just lacking in social skills? Again, in chapter 37, Joseph has two different dreams. Now, if Joseph was not a narcissist, or if he really understood how to interpersonal relate with other people, he would have kept those dreams to himself. Because those dreams elevated him and pretty much pushed down his brothers and even his mom and his, his moms and his dad. But the narrator wants us to hear that Joseph doesn't care about that. In order for the story to work, Joseph has to tell the dreams. So is it any surprise that we find out as readers that his brothers don't like him? They hate him. They despise him. The story goes on and tells us that there was one particular day where Jacob asked Joseph to go look in on his brothers. Bad mistake. Don't do that. Don't put... That's like pouring gas on a fire. And that's exactly what happens. They see Joseph coming, and perhaps on that particular day, Joseph was wearing his colored coat. And they can catch him in the distance, and they say, Ah, look who's coming, the dreamer. And I imagine they said far more than what's recorded in the text. They come up with a plan. It's time to get rid of Joseph. So they decide to kill him. And then one or two of them speak up and decide, well, maybe we should think about this more. But their hostility, their ill will toward Joseph leads them to act violently toward him. The story says that they took him and they threw him down into a pit. And there he will either die on his own or they will make sure that he dies in some way. But then one of them says, wait a minute, maybe this caravan that we see off in the distance, maybe, what if, what, what if we took Joseph 
and sold him to them. Then we wouldn't walk around the rest of our lives feeling guilty that we killed him. What do you guys think? They weigh it out. They decide that's the better idea. And so Joseph goes in to, to slavery. That's the situation. Where the complication arises is that life has pretty much gone back to normal without Joseph. They can tell their dad misses him dearly. But life goes on until a famine hits the land of Canaan. It's not only in Canaan, but it's in the surrounding nations, even down in Egypt. And they are able to eke out an existence for a period of time, but eventually things become so scarce that Jacob tells his sons, look, rumor has it that down in Egypt, they still have food. Make the trek down there and see if you can bring us back something so we can continue to survive. Ten sons agree that they will go. When they go down to Egypt, they are led into a part of the palace, and lo and behold, the reader all of a sudden becomes aware of what's happening. It's almost as if you can hear the reader say, uh-oh, because the reader knows that that's where Joseph is. And he started out as a housekeeper, ended up in jail, and now he's up high in the Egyptian court, right next to Pharaoh. And all of a sudden, this conflict is going to come to a head again. Except instead of being out in the valley, in the shepherd's realm, of his brother's realm, now they are literally in Joseph's court. And you begin to wonder, what's going to happen? What's Joseph going to do? As you read the story, you begin to realize through Joseph's actions and his words, you really don't know. You're left to wonder what will happen. As the story moves on, eventually they come to an agreement that they will go back to Canaan and get their dad and their younger brother, and they will all move down to Egypt. But is that necessarily mean reconciliation? Or does it imply that the reason they're getting along is what happens in a lot of families? Is the siblings are getting along because mom and dad are still alive and they're the ones keeping the peace? It seems to be the latter. Because when they come down, there has no, been no act of forgiveness. The brothers have not asked for forgiveness. Joseph, Joseph has not given them forgiveness. And so you begin to wonder how reconciled are these individuals, Joseph and his brothers. Until you come to the very end of Genesis. Genesis chapter 50. There we find an amazing insight into the relationship between Joseph and his brothers, even in Egypt. Their dad dies. And immediately, the brothers go, uh-oh, we got a problem. Now that dad is no longer along, around, what's Joseph going to do? 
It's possible that they came up with a plan. We're not sure if their dad actually told them this or not, but their plan appears to be to tell Joseph that, oh, by the way, right before dad died, he said um, that you ought to forgive us. I, I know you may not want to, but you, you, that, that would make dad so happy. Dad asked, And listen to how Joseph replies to that. Joseph looks at them, and he sees through their words, and he says, don't be afraid. Do you think I'm God? You originally planned to hurt me, but God planned it for good. He planned to do what is now being done. He wanted to save many lives. So then, don't be afraid. In those words, Joseph, Joseph is able to set aside his own personal hurt and anger and see the bigger picture. He realizes that if he holds on to his hurt and his anger, that it's going to create problems for the entire family. And so Joseph is able to do something that will bring about true reconciliation. Joseph is able to set aside how he feels for a greater cause. And so the text continues and he says, don't be afraid. I'll take care of you. And I'll take care of your children. And then the narrator gives us two lines to re-emphasize the words of Joseph. The narrator said that Joseph calmed their fears, and he spoke in a kind way to them. That's reconciliation. That is when two sides that don't really care for each other are able to come together and set aside some of their differences for a greater cause, a greater good. So if it happened in this story, we realize that conflict is something that has been with us for millennials. Is it possible that it could happen today? That we could truly despite being red and blue as a country, is it possible that we could be reconciled? Now, some of you were saying, oh, you know, Tony, that's a great idea. But come on, make it practical. What could I do this week to bring about a little step forward to reconciliation and play my role as a, as a citizen of this country? I offer you three ideas that you could practice this week that could lead to the type of reconciliation that Joseph found with his brothers. Number one, Joseph was able to set aside his personal hurts for something greater than himself. Today, Politics has become very 
very personal. I mean, we, we have a tendency as individuals to identify with a larger group that we're really not even actively a part of. On Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, after a college football game or a professional football game, you'll hear a fan say, we won! No, you, you didn't win. You weren't on the field. But we have a tendency to so identify with something that we feel that we are emotionally a part of it. And that's what's happening right now in politics. So when someone votes differently than us, it hurts us. We take it as a personal attack against us. It bruises our ego. Well, then you must not like me. but it has nothing to do with us. These individuals may have different ideas, different priorities, different ways of thinking. They may have had experiences that we have not had. And if we're able to somehow do what Joseph did and just set that aside, perhaps we'll be able to look at each other differently. So that's a first step. Second step. We need to start talking and listening to each other. Here in Phoenix and in Arizona, the counts are so close. So more than likely, when you walk down the street, you're going to bump into someone who voted differently than you. 50% of the people probably voted different than the way you voted. Each and every one of us has an opportunity to engage someone else that is different than us. But before we can have those kind of conversations, each one of us has to stop and reflect upon what is important to us. That's why we spent the last six weeks talking about moral foundations, what it is that we find of value. And out of that value, why did we make the decisions we did regarding how we cast our vote? That's so important to understand so that when you have the conversation, you have a sense of security of who you are. So then when you enter in the conversation, you actually begin to listen to the other person because you're secure in your own ideas. You don't need to impose them on someone else. Instead, you can step back and actually listen to them. And when they say something that you disagree with and you kind of go, you, you know, get that crinkled look and go, Ugh. right? Instead, you become curious. And you ask them, tell me about that. I mean, look at the conversations that happened between Joseph and his brothers. This back and forth. The insights they gained from each other that provided the means by which eventual full reconciliation could take place. We need to listen and talk with one another in a helpful way 
And let's please, please stop yelling at each other. And then number three, understand that we need those that are different than us. Because in order to be a thriving nation, we must be one nation, not two. Stop and think about this. How boring life would be if everyone believed and thought just like you. I am so fortunate here at Church of the Beatitudes to have a staff who has the courage and the creativity to be able to listen to me and say, mm, Tony, not, not, no, 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 that's not a good idea. Or, good idea, but what if we did this, this, and this? I don't want to be surrounded by people that believe just the way I do. If we were only truly divided into two countries, we would be missing the other half of who we really are. We need each other. And we need to learn how to live with those differences. Is reconciliation possible? Yes. Is it going to be hard work? Yes. So why do I say that with so much confidence? Because we've done it before. In 1800, Thomas Jefferson ran for president of the United States. He was coming from a new party. That party was called the Republicans. Up until that point, all the, all the presidents had been from the Federalist Party. But this new party had started in the South called the Republicans. And when he started to run for president, he got, he got hit from all sorts of different directions. They said he was an atheist. They said he wasn't a true believer. Sound familiar? Bring religion into it. They said he was a Frenchie. He had loyalties in other directions and that he didn't have the country as its main priority. Again, you hear the similarities. Thomas Jefferson ended up winning. And when he gave his inaugural address, his goal was to unite the country once again. And his words at least took the first step in bringing back reconciliation. At the very end, he said the following. Words that not only were applicable in the, 18, in the 1800, but are so applicable in 2020 as we are in the cusp of finding out who our next president will be. And Jefferson said, let us then, fellow citizens, unite with one heart and one mind. Let us restore to social intercourse that harmony and affection without which and even life itself are but dreary things. 
let us restore social intercourse that harmony and affection will once abound. Amen. Thank you for joining us for today's show. You can help us to continue this program by making your donations at beatitudeschurch.org backslash online giving. Beatitudes Radio, empowering people to enrich society.